The tale of the greatest horror movie lost to time becomes this podcast's first comic book review. From writer Scott Snyder and artist Francesco Francavia, it's Night of the Ghoul on this episode of Scary Stuff. And welcome to a very special episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, joined by co-host Nick Leaney. Hey, everybody. How you doing tonight? And Jacob Jones Goldstein. Good evening. <laughs> How's everybody doing tonight? Not too bad. A uh, little sore, but yard work will do that. But overall, I'm doing quite well. Well, hey, you got a yard now, so, you know. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> it's all part and parcel. Yeah, we went over Nick's home buying adventures back in our Amityville episode, but which was the last movie review we did, and now we're on a streak of kind of shaking a trend a little bit. So our previous episode, we sort of talked about movies, but mainly we talked about a book, Haunted Reels, which is available now. You can get it at darkmattermagazine.shop, so absolutely go buy that. But Just go buy it. Stop arguing. <laughs> but today, we're talking about our very first comic on the Scary Stuff podcast, although it's... well. We're, we're talking about our first comic-specific episode. We, we, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We talk about comics a fair amount. <laughs> At least you two do. <laughs> well, this one's different because we made Nick read it this time. That's true. That's true. And I did. It was a good read. Well, someone else who read it, too. So we're doing our very first comic book review, and there's someone we really want to bring on as a guest because... He knows all about comics because he blogs about them at the aptly named Comics 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 website. And you can also, if you want to hear him talk about horror comics, you can check out his recent appearances reviewing issues of Phantom Stranger on the podcast Magazines and Monsters. So please join me in welcoming back to the pod, Jeremiah Jones Goldstein. Yay! This fucking guy. (laughs) Hey guys, glad to be back. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking about this comic. It was really an excellent story. So before Jared came back on, Eric pulled me aside and he made me promise to not pick any fights this time. So we're going to try. So Eric wanted you to lie to him. Lie, that's, that's, that's what I'm hearing. Eric wanted you to lie to him. <laughs> he, he pulled me aside and he said, look, if we have another Constantine episode, we're going to have to talk. And I, I took him seriously. So uh, we, we have an agreement. <laughs> you don't, don't pick fights with your brother. Jared and I don't berate you for not having seen the Friends of Eddie Coyle. We'll all get along fine. So everyone's lying to everyone. Got it. <laughs> Which is funny because it just occurred to me, I was rewatching it as part of the prep for this. This has been the best episode to prep for because I've had a really bad stretch of a few days. I know Jake has too, but for me, it was like the flip side of that is I've just been reading a bunch of comics and I rewatched the Friends of Eddie Coyle. So that part of it's been great. And just really stuck in my head reading this comic. I was like, oh, I really wish at one point T.F. Merritt had asked for us. Count your knuckles, Mr. Inman. <laughs> Which would have made a great callback when the ghoul's hands emerge later. And it's got like eight joints on each finger. <laughs> Count my fucking knuckles! <laughs> Go watch the Friends of Eddie Coyle. You'll get the knuckles reference. I do but... not get this reference. You should! I get it. <laughs> We're not going to yell about that today. <laughs> well, it shouldn't be a problem. It shouldn't be any arguments. We both like this comic. We both like the creators. We both like the story. It's true. So, yeah. And part of the reason, so we actually hadn't talked about this particular comic, but I know you share my love of another comic by one of its creators, which we're probably going to touch on. So I was pretty confident you were going to dig it as much as I did. But 
so we'll mention though so if anyone is coming to this like i mentioned we're typically a horror movie podcast this is our first comic book centric episode so on the off chance it's your first episode of our pod thank you for listening if you want to check out our links we got a link tree just look us up username is scary stuff although we're a horror movie podcast we've had a lot a lot of comic centric guests we've had rom v on danny lore jm dimateus erica henderson alex segura michael marisi trevor henderson counts too because he did some variant covers it's true he did a variant cover for a scott snyder book for um the department of truth james tynan okay i'm just an idiot but he's scott snyder's <laughs> student so it counts he's gonna come on so admitting it's the first step jake He's Scott Snyder adjacent, it counts. We, we were talking about James Tynan before recording, and my brain doesn't work so good. They co-wrote Batman Eternal and a bunch of stuff. Yeah, it's fine. It's close enough. They're still, like, best friends, so. We should get a little bell if it Jake's first fuck up. Ding! <laughs> <laughs> It'll save you on editing. You can just leave my shit in there. <laughs> Make a little game out of it. <laughs> thanks for doing me a solid and saving me some some time in adobe audition this time around every time you hear a ding going forward that's five minutes of life eric has back <laughs> <laughs> ah what the hell we haven't busted this out in a while yay <laughs> it brings me joy but so like i mentioned this is our first comic book centric episode so why are we doing this now and a few reasons, which are, A, it's a comic about a movie. It's kind of a natural leap. The comic was been kind of on my brain because we just did the Haunted Reels. And before we landed on talking about just various movie anthologies with Dave, we were thinking about possible tie-ins for that. You know, it was like, oh, do we do cigarette burns? You know, sinister stuff about haunted movies. And it was like, and but Night of the Ghoul very much features that. So it was kind of in my brain. It just came out in trade. Selfishly, this is a work by creators whose work means a lot to me. We'll get into that in just a moment. But Wait, I thought we did this because we let Nick pick an episode and we had to get back at him somehow. How's this getting back at me? You love our comic stuff. You love it. <laughs> I, I, I prefer movies. This was a good comic. But no, it is time. So speaking of upcoming comics, it is timely because the creators of this book are working on something else coming up soon. So a new publishing company is about to launch called distillery which is just spelled d-s-t-l-r-y and it's being run by david steinberger and chip mosher who both work for comiXology and both departed comiXology when amazon kind of consolidated things last year i think so this is their new endeavor and they're launching it with a one shot called the devil's cut which is coming out august 31st this one shot is featuring a bunch of short stories by various creators who were all considered founding members of this company. And I believe all of these short stories are going to end up launching series at one point or another. And one of those stories is done by the team we're going to be talking about tonight, which is the team of Scott Snyder, Francesco Francavilla, and other folks from Best Jacket Press. That story is called White Boat. It's also a classic horror-esque story. This one is specifically, uh, all I know is it's aquatic-based. If you look at it, you'll see a lot of uh, Francesco Francavilla's art. You'll see a lot of tentacle work going on. And so, don't know too much about it. I wonder if it was going to be, before we get into Night of the Ghoul, they had talked about 
doing sort of seasonal stories following Night of the Ghoul, focusing on different monsters. So I wonder if this is what was going to be the original follow-up to Night of the Ghoul, and now it's a distillery instead of comicsology. I don't know. That's speculation. But part of the reason I wanted to mention it, which is distillery has a little bit of unique distribution model that they're doing. Once the issues are printed, my understanding is they're not reprinting anything, and they're going to release stuff simultaneously digitally, but it's all going to be via a proprietary app, and it's only going to be on sale there for one week. So the digital sale for Devil's Cut is going to end on September the 6th. And after that, I believe you can resell your copy, but it's just done. There's no NFTs, no crypto, no anything like that. But you can they'll have a marketplace within this proprietary app that they've got going. The interesting part of it is for sales that are made there, the creators get a cut. So even if, if stuff is resold on this marketplace, some money is going back to the original creators, which is interesting. So we'll see what it works like for a model, but I, I wanted to throw that out up front. So if anyone hadn't heard of it, then definitely get your order in or check it out at your local comic shop quick, because there's definitely a limited window with their business model. That's confusing. I, I, yeah, I mean, we'll see how it works. Something about buying a digital used copy of a comic book that seems... <laughs> we're trying it's it's kind of an extension of it seems of the sort of thing they were sort of doing with comiXology which will come up because this that's where this book originated but this seems like something the folks at bad idea came up with uh, yeah i thought a bad idea press too i was like oh it seems so yeah it's kind of in between bad idea and comiXology so we'll see how it does but the creators they've got as far as the folks involved in this so we got uh, just to run down the writers real quick these are all folks who have stories in the devil's cut James Tynan, Mark Bernardin, Elsa Chiratier, Stephanie Phillips, Mirka Andolfo. Jock is writing and drawing his story. His is actually going to be the first series coming out of it. His series is called Gone. Uh, Brian Azzarello, Scott Snyder, we mentioned, Jamie McKelvey, Ron V, and Becky Cloonan's doing one as well. So it's a hell of a lineup. That's just the writers. And yep, and all the artists are doing variant covers of the first issue too, of this one shot. So, so it's interesting, but it, I'm excited for the white boat story, which is Scott Snyder, Francesco Francavilla again. So and anything Francavilla does, I'm going to buy. So depending on how I can get a hold of it, I guess I'm still old school. I like to buy the issues, but you know, that digital model at least sounds different. So, you know, we'll take a look, but uh, I'm, I'm just excited for any work he puts out. He's absolutely one of my, it's funny. I, I was thinking about this when we were kind of talking about doing this is that I was a bit of fan of his without really realizing it because you had bought, Nick, a print yes, of his of a Cthulhu print that hung in Nick's basement. Oh, I love it. And it hung opposite where I sat for 10 years playing <laughs> Call of Cthulhu. So whenever I was there, I was looking at that picture. And I somehow, along the lines, I love the picture, never quite realized it was Frank Avia, even after I started getting into his comic book work and you know met him a few times at Baltimore. And uh, so, yeah, I was a fan before I knew I was a fan. Yeah, that's where I got that print. Um Real quick before I get into that, just throw this out there. Uh, usual spoiler warning, we're a full spoiler podcast, and we're probably not going issue by issue. We're probably, once we get into the comic, we're probably going to go over the place. So if you haven't read it, we're all going to tell you to read it, I think. So oh, yeah. go read it. Come on back. If you have Amazon Prime, you can read it for free. It's part of their, what used to be Comixology. They've now just folded it in, but you can just click read for free on it and Amazon and read it for free. But, but you should buy it at your local comic book shop. Yep. We highly encourage you to go to your LCS and get the singles. There's three singles with two issues inside each one. 
and the trades just came out. Get the trade, but I would. Uh, it's worth hunting down the issues because they all have pretty fantastic covers. Yeah, good variants too. Some of the other best jacket creators did variants. So there's a Francis Manipal variant. There's a Tulu Latte variant. So they're, they're, all the covers are phenomenal. Yeah, that print you mentioned is only one of two I have actually. Uh, Eric gave us two of them, so I got that one, and I have the one with Batman like looking over Gotham City while holding a balloon. <laughs> oh, that's the Mike Myhack one. I forgot I got you that. Yeah. I think I got it. I think that was for Hannah because that was when I first started going to the Baltimore Comic Con. I tried to bring little things back. I think that was what I got for Hannah one year was a Mike Myhack print of Batman with a balloon. It was a good one. But yeah, the Lovecraft print, that was my very first Baltimore Comic Con. And that was the very first table I went to was Francesco Francavia because I'd seen his artwork online. I wanted to make sure I got one of these prints. And gave it to nick and because it was like this is the sort of thing you should have we mentioned on previous episodes nick ran a call of cthulhu game that jake and i were a part of for what 12 years 12 15 almost 15 yeah so nick has that piece of francesco francovi work and he's got another one somewhere because i forget if it was jake or me but one of us came in when afterlife with archie number six came out and basically threw it on the (laughs) you you just need to have this which that's is the Sabrina one. one shot. Yeah, that's a good one. I remember sitting. I don't even remember what movie I was saying, but I was sat in my car reading it, waiting for in the the parking lot of the the Newark movie theater, waiting for a film. And I read that comic. I was waiting for somebody to meet me there, and it was just oh. just a stunningly good issue. I Afterlife with Archie. I've talked about on the podcast before as being one of my all time favorite horror comics, and certainly one of the best in in recent years. It, just just an absolute fantastic book and and Frank of his art just knocked it out of the park stellar stellar you know and on top of that he's also a wicked nice dude incredibly so like at the, the last baltimore he was at he was selling the art of afterlife or the art of archie i forget exactly the art of afterlife with archie books and i you know being such a big fan i i picked one up and kind of chatted him twice and he did a little jug he said you know who's your favorite character and jughead and he goes okay and he drew me a little jughead and signed it so i actually have both his signatures now i've got the full signature and then the little one he does for covers nice oh so uh yeah he he we we just had a nice conversation he's just such a lovely dude he's terrific sincerely one of i've gotten probably like four different visits to the baltimore comic-con or something like that i got stuff signed by him and jake you did the same but one of my legit, one of my top five experiences getting something signed by a creator was with Francesco Francovi at, at um, I think it was his last appearance at the Baltimore Comic-Con. And it's a story I'd love to tell, but we're an audio-only podcast and it, it needs visuals. So <laughs> so if you see us at a con, I'll tell you the story. It's absolutely lovely. But Chair, you have at least one of his prints hanging in your guest room, or you did. I do. I've got the cover to... I think it's Afterlife number one, the Archie, you know, the ghoul Archie with the crown. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love his work. I love that print, except for the fact that it's not a standard size. But yeah, he's, <laughs> I've got several things signed by him, including the, the uh, one of the Life with Archie Afterlife magazines I got signed by him. So yeah, he's a, he's a fun dude. I didn't realize till prepping for this episode that that's where Afterlife with Archie sprang was from a variant cover he did with for life with archie number 23 and that yeah. was the whole launching point i was like oh my gosh yep in his counterpart in the snyder i don't think i've ever met scott snyder really he's been in baltimore a few times yeah i i was kind of going through my my sign stuff and i don't have anything so i'm not sure i ever but i know you both have oh yeah 
couple times. I, you both. I mean, Jarrett and, and Eric. And they know. They, they know. <laughs> just Everyone knows. <laughs> Nick blows our minds by pulling out his sign. <laughs> I got all 50 issues of his Batman run. <laughs> <laughs> we the chrome covers of metal right here. <laughs> there was never any doubt that you were talking about Jaren and Eric. <laughs> yeah, I I met him in Boston. It might have been the last year they were in the seaport. I'm not sure. I think I had him sign Witches. Yeah, Witches is good. Which he he's only done the the original series and the one shot, right? There hasn't been anything after that that Halloween one shot, right? There there's going to be. Um, yeah, th- there's going to be more coming for something else he's working on in tandem with witches. Yeah, George R.R. R. Martin's going to finish Game of Thrones. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, but there's a witches ser- like TV series coming. Isn't yeah, there? so that's what part of what held it up, which was, so in 2022, Scott Snyder and Jock were pitching it for a possible Amazon series, and it did get picked up, and Scott Snyder ended up running the writer's room for it. So they were working on that. I think they broke a series outline and work on it is now stopped because of the writer's strike. So that's held it up. But they mentioned the plan was to release more witches in conjunction with the first season of this from Amazon. Now it got a, it's a two season order, but I think they've only guaranteed like they'll show the first season and then they'll, they'll decide on the second. But Scott Snyder oversaw the writer's room with a couple other familiar names who would have come up on the pod before. So the co-showrunner is Marion Dare, and she was the story editor on Better Call Saul, or at least a good chunk of it. And I think she's the showrunner on Marvel's upcoming Echo show. But one of the lead writers on Witches was Jeff Howard. We've absolutely talked about Jeff Howard because he's a co-writer with Mike Flanagan of Oculus, Before yeah, I Wake, yeah. Gerald's Game. Uh, he wrote an epic Midnight Mass. He worked on the Resident Evil show for Netflix. And he has a really nifty Superman pitch, which you should ask him about. And he's been doing a lot of writing classes on YouTube, and we'll link to those. So, but yeah, some familiar names in the writer's room for that. While it may go without saying, I'm going to say it anyway, that as excited as I am for the notion of a witches series, I am willing to wait as long as it takes because I back the writers right now. Just want to say that right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, back yeah. the writer's strike, 100%. Yep, that's how our Amityville show opens. Yeah, we absolutely stand yep. by the writers. That is not wavered. No, no, not at all. Plus, so I'm curious to see exactly how much it'll delay it, Like, because I don't know how far along they were. It's They have an animation studio, so I guess in theory they could work on that. Well, the interesting thing about... If Ron Perlman has his way, not long. <laughs> <laughs> well, the interesting thing, too, is Jock worked in tandem with the animation team on the visual design of the show, so apparently it's going to look supposedly a lot like the comics which is going to be interesting that's that's certainly ambitious given jock's style so i'm excited but but yeah we'll see how it turns out but one or the other whenever the strikes all set and the series ends up coming out i'm thrilled for it so while we're, while we're talking about the media stuff they're involved in real quick i'm going to do uh not one but two community connections oh nice so our first community connection is via scott snyder nick's gonna love this one. Oh god Scott Snyder created the character Harper Rowe, mm. uh, who first appeared in his Batman run, Volume 2, number 7, in 2012. Uh, Harper Rowe was actually a character who was featured on the Young Justice animated series in a few episodes, voiced by Zira Fazal. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. I hope so. Uh, she's done a ton of voice work, including Talia Al Ghul, 
in the DC animated movie Catwoman Hunted. Catwoman Hunted features not one but two community alums, Jonathan Banks, oh. who played Professor Buzz Hickey, and uh, Keith David, oh. who played uh, Elroy Potashnik. Jonathan Banks was Black Mask, and Keith David was Tobias Whale. So that's community connection number one, uh, which I enjoyed because, you know, anything I can talk about Jonathan Banks and, you know, Keith David. That was such a Spaceballs connection, though. They're comic book writers. I'm just saying. <laughs> what do you want from my life? Your father's brother's nephew's former roommate. <laughs> Anywho, so the second one yeah, is through Francesco Francavia. Nice. He was a storyboard artist on a few episodes of the animated series Wolverine and the X-Men. Mm-hmm. One of the episodes was called Time Bomb that he worked on. Uh, And in that episode was a character named Colonel Moss, who was voiced by Michael Ironside. Michael Ironside, of course, was in the season three episode, Basic Lupin Urology, as Colonel Archwood, who is one of the character's uncles who comes in to defend him during a mock trial about smashed potatoes. So that's number two. That's better. That's better. Yeah, blow me. They're both good. got high standards for you coming into this i was like well i get community connections for comic book writers this is going to be a little bit tougher and then i realized wait no it isn't i'm better than this and uh (laughs) here we are but i got excited when he actually did the storyboard artist on the specific episode that uh michael ironside was in because i get to bring up michael ironside too which is one of my favorite always good yeah whenever we do witches that'll be that shouldn't be too bad for it because jock's done a lot of hollywood work and he's done a lot of design like i think he was the lead designer on the Carl Urban Judge Dredd movie, I'm just going off the top of my head, but I know Look, he's once done. once I got there from the Innocence, nothing was too too hard for me. <laughs> That's still the, the high water mark, <laughs> especially since I used the Innocence connection twice. <laughs> Might get trickier when we get to like pre code horror, you know, which is probably going to come up as part of this discussion. <laughs> the, yeah, when, when we do the Black Cat or the Old Dark House, you know, that might be. You might need to crack your knuckles on that one. <laughs> that's that's going to be closer to, instead of two or three degrees, that's going to be like seven degrees of separation. We're going to be playing some Kevin Bacon shit with those. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting that in terms of Scott Snyder and Francesco Francavia, so I kind of discovered them at the same time, personally, because I believe I saw them both for the first time on the Black Mirror arc of Detective Comics. For anyone as I read that, there's two threads that run through that. There's the primary story, the lead story, which is done, the artwork on that is by Jock, but Francesco Francavia did the backups, which are about Commissioner Gordon and his son, Jim Gordon Jr., and those threads end up converging at the end of the arc. But, like, I've always been a big Dick Grayson fan. Nightwing was kind of my gateway into getting DC Comics regularly. And I was skeptical going into that that whole stretch, because it, it was after they had killed Batman as part of Final Crisis, and it was like, ah. Uh, Oh, they're doing Dick Grayson as Batman. And I was, you know, skeptical. And I read the the Black Mirror arc of Detective Comics. And I said, this is fucking great. It just really nailed an interesting story that was really catered to the Dick Grayson character. You know, the the whole title, the Black Mirror, stems from being, you know, how Gotham is this dark mirror for Batman. And because Dick Grayson is a new Batman, Gotham kind of adjusts itself towards his fears and his insecurities and whatnot. It's a terrific story. Go check it out. But we brought up before that Scott Snyder's written, we'll, we'll run down some of the other stuff he wrote because he's written a lot, but he wrote the miniseries Witches, which we were just talking about. And I have a real soft spot for Witches. So good. Because completely by chance, Witches is the first miniseries that I read 
I think it was the first comic period I read right after I lost my dad. And if you've read Witches, it is simultaneously the best and worst thing that you could read <laughs> after losing a parent. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But I, like, I was already a huge fan of Snyder's work. Like I mentioned, I, he, I was really impressed by that Detective Comics run and then got his Batman, went out and read Severed, which is an under kind of an undersung horror comic he did, which he co-wrote with a guy named Scott Tuft. So, folks, if you like Scott Snyder's horror work, go check out that mini because it doesn't get a lot of attention from what I've seen. Most folks probably know American Vampire, which kind of put Scott Snyder on the map. I didn't read it when it came out, but I was aware of it because the reason most people are aware of it was it, it was co-written with Stephen King, or at least the backups on it were. I remember reading the first issue or two when it came out, and I don't I don't really know why I didn't stick with it. I some I, some of the covers were a little cheesecakey, and uh, you know when I'm buying comics and my wife is around and I'm buying cheesecakey covers, sometimes <laughs> I get a little grief. I'm just saying, were they? Uh, I can't remember the covers. I I don't remember that. I I think I have most of that series and the, the second one. I read more of the second one, but I that was a good series. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. It's entirely possible. Ring the bell, Eric. He's wrong. <laughs> I just assume it. I, <laughs> well, I don't want to ring it until it's proven, but <laughs> no, I'm looking, at the, I'm looking at the covers now. It's the, I'm thinking of something else. Okay. Yay! There we go. <laughs> Why does that tickle me so? <laughs> I feel like life has meaning. Well, while Jake's perusing covers, I'll mention since we were just talking about Jeff Howard's writing classes on YouTube, Scott Snyder threw his best jacket imprint. He has a Substack. And when it first launched, I really wanted to sign up for the founders tier on it, but it was like, I, I just can't afford it at this point. Cause it was, a, it's an annual fee. You get a, a lot out of it for the fee, but I just couldn't afford it at the time. But so as part of the prep for this episode, I signed up for the paid version of his Substack so I could check out his writing classes that he offers and some of the Q and A's he does. And for anyone curious about it, go check it out. His Substacks currently it's only like $8 a month and you get, a lot of these two-hour writing sessions he does about three-act structure, writing villains, conflict. He's got all kinds of guests. There's one with Chip Zdarsky, who has his own. Chip Zdarsky's written a lot of fabulous comics, but horror comics. His comic Stillwater is phenomenal. Uh, Matthew Rosenberg, Donny Cates. He has a class on world building, which set off my Keith Giffen alarm. <laughs> 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 we'll tell that story someday on the pod, too, I swear. Someday. But yeah, if you're a horror fan, and the episode on endings, he brings up the movie Martyrs, which I'm sure excites Nick as far as... Oh, dear God. Movies that, you know, <laughs> zig when you expect them to zag. I was like, yeah, that Holy counts, crap. But... That doesn't just zig. It's like two completely different films just like oh, yeah. smack dab next to each other. Okay, so the comic I was thinking of was the Howard Chaikin vampire what? book, Bite Black Club. Kiss? Bite Club. Bite Club, okay. <laughs> like, Black Kiss isn't vampires. It's like, how could it be Black Kiss? This is like 20 years before American Vampire. Uh, I was thinking of American Flag, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can see how a Howard Chaykin cover would be. <laughs> Not one you would want to buy around Jen, yeah. Hell, the whole comic. I can't picture the covers for Bite Club, but I I can guess they're they're somewhat risque. I, I would just say use your uh, incognito window when you start looking up stuff from... Uh, <laughs> Bike Club, if you're doing it at work. <laughs> but yeah, just a quick plug for Scott Snyder's writer's classes. They're really great. My favorite part of the, he does these Q&As with the students. 
where he just fields questions. It's like a two-hour session. So sincerely, if you're at all curious about writing in general, but writing comics, it's I'm loving it so far. Can I throw one more last thing before we get into it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess we ought to mention that one of the best moments that at least Eric and I had in the history of this podcast was due to Francesco Francavilla was when he... Okay, yeah, I was going to bring that up when we got to Francesco's. So, again, we're, we're not a video podcast, but yes. I'm just going to wiggle this in front of the microphone <laughs> because I printed this out. <laughs> this is the single most surreal moment of our podcast. No. June 10th, 2021, a tweet from Francesco Francavilla, which is happy hashtag Tars Day, as in the Tar Man. Here's the cover I did for the 30th anniversary release on Blu-ray slash DVD of Return of the Living Dead. I recently listened to At Scary Stuff Pod's episode about this movie, and I learned a few things I didn't know about it. Good podcast, guys. Hashtag Tarman. Hashtag send more podcasters. Nice. <laughs> he also posted it on Instagram, and I, I just remember I, staring at it for a long time. I literally got this out. printed. I need to get it framed. <laughs> Because this is, there's been a lot of surreal shit that's happened on this pod. Like we, took, we just had Dave Lawson Jr. on for the fifth time. Jake mentioned we've had you know Mike Flanagan retweet stuff from us. But all that was like a call and response thing where we did something that prompted a response from the person involved. Yeah. We didn't ever tweet at Francesco Francavilla. We were enormous fans of his. But we got this notification and I saw the tweet. I think Jake was like, holy shit, did you see this? And I looked at it, and like my, my legit reaction was, oh my god, he must have tagged the wrong podcast. Oh my god, do I tell him? <laughs> I mean, I don't know who, because he couldn't have meant us. And I was like, wait a minute, we did return to the living dead. Maybe, maybe, holy shit, Francesco Francavilla listened to our podcast. Yep. And then I was mortified, because I was like, oh god, that's our first episode. Jesus Christ. <laughs> no, no, don't listen to that, that was the one we did huddled around my snowball microphone. Uh Hey, if you like that one, you're going to love the rest. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's only up from there. But yeah, no. Although that was back when all three of us did research and not just Eric. So. <laughs> <laughs> you, just don't, you just do the community connection. That's research. That's not research. That's research. At this point, it's practically just trolling Nick. <laughs> which i'm willing to go the extra mile for as we i swear to god like he's just gonna start like skipping the obvious like people like we're gonna do like five movies that each have an actual actor from like the main cast he's like no 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 the sound tech here <laughs> happened to have a cousin who went to france the same time as <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, that's not why we decided to do the comic. No, it it's was, not. It was a nice yeah, little bonus. It's it's still, Jake and I, have, that is still the single most surreal moment. It was like, oh my God, Francesco Francavilla listened to our podcast. I liked it. Holy shit. So, <laughs> so yeah, just to run down the creative team real quick, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but just on the off chance, someone's listening to this, he normally listens to our movie stuff, and you're not overly familiar with these creators. Just to run down real quick, Francesco Francavilla's like I mentioned, I found him through the Black Mirror arc of Detective Comics, which is great. He did Afterlife with Archie, which is great if you like horror. We did an episode on Moon Knight, the Marvel series, but we touched on the Jeff Lemire run of that book, and he did one of the threads in that. But he does a lot of great horror pinups. I'm, if you're listening to this, you almost certainly follow him already. But if you don't, please follow him because he puts up, he does a lot of horror pinups or has done and, and retweets him a bit. Particularly in February of 2021, if you go to his Tumblr, he did a series of 
headshots for Black Horror History Month. So he did all these headshots of Tanana Redu, Bill Cobbs, Loretta Devine, and they look awesome. He's probably put them on Twitter as well, but I saw him on his, his old Tumblr. So yeah, amazing artist. Go check out his stuff. We'll talk more about his art and his style when we get into the book itself. Scott Snyder, before he got into comics, he did some pro stuff. He did his anthology, Voodoo Hearts. He has a story in the anthology, Who Can Save Us Now? That one's superhero related. That's what got him is kind of a, in the door of the stuff he did with Marvel. But if you're a horror fan, a lot of horror related stuff. I talked about Severed, talked about American Vampire. He's also got The Wake, which he did with Sean Murphy. He's got Noctera, which is about to wrap up its first stretch at Image Comics as we record this. And there's another series as part of his best jacket line we'll talk about, which is called Canary, which is a series he's doing with Dan Panosian, which I think has one issue left to come out as of this recording. We might need to do Canary when it comes out if we're doing this, because I Canary is a horror Western for anyone who hasn't looked it up. It's gorgeous. I really, really, really enjoy it so far. Just to toss one real thing, quick thing about Scott Snyder. He also used to work at Disneyland or Disney, whichever one's in Florida. And uh, he, I think, in Florida. Well, one of them. Uh, that doesn't count as a bell ring. I just don't care. And uh, <laughs> But he used to, he, he did other stuff, but he eventually started dressing up as the characters. And when I read that about him, it really explained a lot of the horror. <laughs> the inspiration. So. Residual mouse drama. Yeah. Yep. Nothing against Disney. I just think dressing up in a suit like that right, in right, the right. hot sun and trying to entertain children feels like a nightmare. I want to make sure I quickly touch on the rest of the creative team, not just the writer and artist. I mean, Francesco Francovi, he does the colors, but the lettering on this book is done by And World Design, which I'd seen them their name before, but I hadn't looked at who put them together. It's a studio that was put together by Darren Bennett, who's a letterer whose work I really, really like. They do lettering on Something is Killing the Children, Noctera, Nice House on the Lake, House of Whispers. Uh, two comics Jake and I brought up on the pod before, Dark Blood by LaToya Morgan, so and good. Eve by Victor Laval. Also very good. And also, randomly, apparently they, if Comic Vine is accurate, they did the letters for multiple volumes of the English manga version of Higurashi, When They Cry, which is a very notable horror. Uh, I've seen the anime, but I, I think it was a visual novel first that then became a manga, which then became an anime, I think. But they also have a YouTube channel that's really nifty where you can see, like, lettering walkthroughs and whatnot. It's Their YouTube channel is and World Design 4309s, which you can check out on YouTube. The graphic design on this book was done by Emma Price, and she does graphic design work on all the best jacket books. She's working on Devil's Cut, the distillery book we mentioned. She worked on a great series for Image called Coffin Bound, did a lot of logo design work. But also, after this pod, if you go to her website, she has a lot of her various design work she's done outside of comics, one of which is she was the designer of the social media campaign for Ouija, Origin of Evil. Yay. So if you saw the, the interactive like Ouija board and like flash animations and stuff, she put all that together. So I was like, oh, hey, shout that out. Very nice. That movie remains a miracle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Editor on the book is Will Dennis, who's, if you've read any Vertigo stuff, you've almost certainly seen his name. Took over 100 bullets when Axel Alonso left. He worked on Scout, worked on Gideon Falls, Mike Carey's Lucifer. His site is bespokecomics.com. But I'll also say, if you're curious, check out an interview he did with Fanbase Press, where he talks about how he got into comics via Shelley Bond. It's a really interesting story. And he also talks about the release of Batman Damned, which 
<laughs> Even if you're not in comics, you're probably familiar with Van Dam for its infamous first issue. And his anecdotes about that are <laughs> really, really fascinating. So very nice. Batman Damned is the one where you see the the, the full Batarang. Yeah, as our as our <laughs> local comic shop called it, the Batawang. Yes, the Batawang. <laughs> I still remember going into the local shop that day. Are you here to see the Batawang. <laughs> That's in my pull box. I pre-ordered. He <laughs> pull. <laughs> and just one more name to throw out Tyler Jennis who's listed as the assistant editor he's the assistant to Will Dennis on a few comics the scumbags Heaven to eternity but he's also just Scott Snyder's assistant he's there on all of the writing classes I mentioned and kind of administrates on those fields questions and whatnot and but yeah just seems like a really nice guy so I just wanted to make sure for a comic it did the complete rundown I want to all those folks do very important work, so I didn't want to leave anybody out. Hey, Seven to Eternity was one of Jer's favorites. Scumbag and Seven to Eternity. Anything recommender writes, man. But Scumbag was excellent. I mean, Seven to Eternity was fantastic. I'm not going to go on and on about that. But Scumbag, that was an excellent comic, and I'd recommend that to anyone. I, I remember you recommended it to me, and I can only find the second issue, so I hadn't picked it up yet. But I'll uh, I'll get around well, to it. Good news. They just released the Deluxe Hardbash Edition. Just came out. You ought to go out and pick that up. <laughs> All right. Rick Remender would love you for it. <laughs> he just said, well, good news. <laughs> <laughs> I can't swallow that. It's an omnibus. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we ought to talk about the comic itself, huh? I Well, we're here. I, so Look, I'll just toss out there. I, I fucking love this. This, I kind of knew it was coming out. I was like, oh, Snyder and Frank Villa, I'm sure this will be good. And then I read the first issue, and I'm like, come on, man. This is almost not fair how good this book is. <laughs> and it runs so like, perfectly to my tastes. You know, it's got the, you know, the kind of the twofold story. It's got, it, I, like, there aren't enough superlatives to talk about how much I love this. This is probably my favorite horror book that's come out. I don't want to say since Afterlife with Archie, because, like, Nice House on the Lake exists, and there's been a lot of good but it's, it's a really good we've said this time and time before but it's a really good time for horror comics right now it's an so. exceptionally i mean you know it's three issues but it's three good hefty issues of a lot of story nice you know they each have great cliffhangers I, you know I, I read it as the issues came out i didn't read it kind of all at once in the trade or anything and it's one of the few books i remember just finishing the issue and just immediately looking up when the next one is going to come out because it was just like i i had that kid-like feeling of I cannot wait until the next issue of this book. And I just wasn't disappointed. Like, you know, there's always, you always have that fear when something is so good right out of the gate. It's like, well, this is going to even out a little bit. And it, it doesn't, it stays good the entire way through. And it has a great classic ending. I just absolutely adored it. Yeah. That was part of the reason I was excited to do it was I knew you had read it and dug it. And Nick, I knew he was going to be reading it for this. We'll get to Nick in a second. Jerry, what'd you think of it? Well, like Jake said, when it when you read the first issue, it grabs you in such a way, if you like this kind of story, where there's something going on in the current stuff, and then there's something from the past. And like you said, you finish the issue and you just want to keep reading. You just want to see what happens next. And one of the things I was worried about was when it starts out that strong, are they going to be able to stick the landing? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when you if you were buying the the single issues, you knew it was only going to be three issues. That's not a lot of time necessarily to develop something 
strong and then stick the landing, especially when it, you know, I mean, they may be double sized issues. Sure. But it starts off so good. You know, there's this thing with the film and this guy's trying to get to know his kid better. And there's just all these things going on that, you know, will all feed into the, the story. And then they do nail the ending and it's like, geez, he really just, this was a solid book from beginning to end. Great three act or six acts, however you want to look at it. That could be pretty rare these days to get something that's that good at the beginning and that good at the end that like you're that satisfied. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. And, and what you mentioned that a lot of the, the pacing and stuff today, because a lot of stories are kind of writing for issues, but they're writing for a trade. So like, Oh, we have you know four issues or whatever X issues. So we have to, you know, make this four issues. Whereas this felt like the perfect length, the perfect pace the whole way through. Like it, it doesn't, there's no like fuzzy middle bit or anything like that. There's no padding. It's all lean and just an absolutely just phenomenal comic books. You know, the, the series it most reminded me of was Hellboy Seed of the Devil, the original Hellboy miniseries in terms of just how it gets you right up front and then just moves the whole way through with this perfect pacing, this perfect art to story connection, like synergy it's it feels like exactly everything I've ever wanted from a comic book, and it, it reminded me again see because it's just so perfect combination of horror and good characters and great art and just oh, I've read it probably four times already. Yeah, I read it like five six times or something. I read them when they were coming out digitally. I didn't keep up with all the best jacket ones initially, but I read all the like the first issues as they came out, and I've caught up on almost all of them so the launch books for best jacket again this these were digital first then they have a deal to put them out in print with dark horse so they came out in singles and then trade collections and similar to what jake mentioned is the lengths of them are variable they're all basically trade length but they're not all like six issue minis the very first one was we have demons which was three issues, although they were like three oversized issues but we have demons was a was a hefty read like that was a that was a sit down and and get into it comic. Like I when I picked it up, you kind of get those heavy, and these are nice big chunky issues too. Yeah, yeah. They just feel good in your hand. You feel like you spent some good money here. We have demons were like that too. They were they were solid reads. Yeah, the first three were We Have Demons, and then Clear with Francis Manipal, and then Night of the Ghoul was the third. And these all launched, I think, in October twenty twenty one. I think. Was what about the uh, Forest Fire one? So that's the. Wildfire, which is under the Dark Spaces line. Oh, okay. That he's got over at IDW. And the gimmick of the Dark Spaces book, or at least Snyder's ones in it, are there's no supernatural elements. They're like thrillers, but not like supernaturally horror. So Wildfire, for folks who don't know the premise of it, is it's five women who are prisoners. And as part of their prison sentence, they're forced to go out and fight wildfires, which is a real thing that these people are conscripted into service and forced to send out and fight fires and during a wildfire they realize there's a mansion nearby of someone you know, who's loaded with money and they decide to go rob the place so it's got kind of a noir plot line running through it as far as this heist element but yeah it's interesting the and barnstormers back to the best jacket one barnstormers as of us recording this just won an eisner for best digital release and that's the one with tula lote on art 
and it's terrific too it's like a period romance and one of the fun things about all the the best jacket books is they were all done they all feel like they're real collaborations between writer and artists like very much just in tone like it feels for the best jacket books all of them have a vibe of let's go bananas to it where it feels like it's really playing into a lot of the best strengths or a lot of the best sensibilities of the artist like we have demons which is by greg capullo you look at it and you read it's a very greg capullo like it's like the most wholesome issue of the creech ever <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it has this really wholesome plot to it but like you know clear is francis manipole just going nuts with all different art styles it's absolutely gorgeous tula latte's art on barnstormers is gorgeous there's dudley dotson in the forever machine which jamal eigel's on who's another artist i love and that one leans into Jamal Eigel's really good with young adult stories. Jamal Eigel did a mini called Molly Danger, which folks might have picked up before. So, yeah, so they run a wide gamut of genres, but they all feel like very much like there's a lot of enthusiasm behind them or really giving the artists an opportunity to either stretch or really lean into their strengths. So, well, they just, th- yeah, this is an absolute playground for Frank Via. I mean, yeah, it's- yeah. Like it's everything, you know, you see, like you mentioned, he, he posts a lot of art on Twitter and everything, his pinups, and he likes the old, the kind of classic age of horror, you know, Dracula, Wolfman. And this just leans so far into that while also having kind of a modern sensibility in the way it's paced and just, uh, it's just so good. So, so what did you think, Nick? Okay. Let me start off by saying. Mute him. That I really enjoyed it. We're done. I really enjoyed it. He's throwing caveats out here. <laughs> the, the artwork is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I love the split narrative of the film and you know modern day. I love the the way they did the damaged film reels throughout. That was a nice touch. I like the concept of what the ghoul is. That was great, and it really maintains the atmosphere throughout. And I think it, it's generally creepy, and it kind of actually has that sort of old timey vibe even. So like the old EC comics, just a little bit, just like in the artwork. And More than a little. <laughs> yeah, exactly. More than a little. That's... But there, there are some... Be careful with this butt, because this could sever relationships. I told Eric I wasn't going to fight with Jared. <laughs> I got the You're bell in my hand, and by the end I'm just going to like crumple it and like, a little, like look like an aluminum foil ball at the end. Like, I, think, I think, honestly, I have two big issues. One, I take big issue with the Order of the Scarab. Because they go way out of their way to make them this, like, screwed up, creepy as hell group that is supposed to make you think it's the Order of the Ghoul. Order of the Fly. They got mutants. They're speaking alien languages. They got, like, an army of old people looking over the kid's shoulder. One guy's vomiting maggots. It's like, these are your good guys. These are the guys that are supposed to be the descendants or the result of the... World War One veterans who form they rebuild this order to take on the goal, and they're all just so beyond twisted. Like they're they're all they're, it makes no sense to me. This like, is like, not something I expected to be in your negative column. I don't know. I expected you to bring up all the points you're talking about, but on the other end of the, they're like this was great. <laughs> Here's the problem: if they were actually the order of the ghoul, it'd be great. Because I don't need an explanation for why a centuries-old cult that is, you know, based on evil and dealing with, like, weird plagues and shit is all sorts of fucked up and maybe speaking this thing's language. 
that all makes sense to me. But you're telling me that in less than 100 years, this group of World War One veterans has devolved into this really ragged up group of like barely human quote unquote saviors. Like it, it doesn't work. It took us less than two years on a podcast to devolve into that. No, it's, it's <laughs> without any explanation, and there is no explanation because it's supposed to be a twist, so we can't have an explanation. But without any explanation for how this group became so god awful twisted, it's just like I'm like, wait, what? This makes no sense. This makes no sense to me. And you're and you're right. Everything I describe are things I love about it, and I enjoyed experiencing it, but the story for it doesn't work, in my opinion. It just doesn't fit. I mean, and not to mention, it's supposed to be this big twist. The minute the kid says, oh, this bug on me, it's actually a scarab, boom. It's like, that wasn't some hint. That wasn't some, like, what's well, weird? I wonder what it could mean. It, clearly, they're the freaking order of the scarab. If they got scarabs, like, spewing all over the place. I, I feel narratively... That was lacking. Everything else I really liked. The Order of the Scarab I felt was very, very lacking. Oh, folks, I think I hear the ending theme seeping in. That's our time to wrap up. <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. No, this is great. What was the other negative? Yeah, my second problem is the ending, honestly. So, like, you know. Oh. No, no, no. Don't be wrong. I, I understand why. What do you mean, don't get me wrong? You've been wrong for five minutes now. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is great. This is interesting. This is all stuff I want to address to one degree or another. They, they go out of their way in World War One to try to like, you know, after World War One to try and defeat this thing with the medicine, but it wasn't strong enough, you know? And so it got away and it got into plot twist. This was a fun one. I like this plot twist. It's in merit that I appreciated. But so what you're telling me is it took them all of this time to finally get medicine. that's strong enough. And then it doesn't even fucking work because it's not like they missed. All right, the guy, like, jacks the thing up in the face with the goddamn syringe. It gets a full dosage of what they've spent about a century perfecting to deal with this thing. And I have to assume they've been waiting a century to get the medicine right, which obviously they're making the move tonight, so it is right. Because otherwise, why not just kill him? It comes out, and then they jack it up. You know, like, they, they are ready for this. They've spent the time. They've done their research. They are ready. He hits in the face. Uh, who cares? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. There's no payoff there. There's no saving the world. And you know, it's it's it doesn't stick for me. Either you need to explain better why it didn't work, or let the guy be a goddamn hero. Well, I mean, it, it makes sense because you know we watch so many movies where the bad guys lose at the end here on this horror podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I understand but, your critique y- here, but my point is is that <laughs> you you need to back it. It needs to have some meat on it to matter. There has to be at least some reason. If you do everything right, and then it just doesn't work anyway, that I, I feel unsatisfied in those moments. I'm genuinely fascinated how much Nick sounds like me when we're talking about movies from I the know, 80s this, right now. <laughs> we were talking about the Scott Snyder arc, the Black Mirror of <laughs> Gotham is a Twisted Mirror. This is the Twisted Black Mirror episode <laughs> of the Scary Stuff Podcast, which is, I was like... Nick's gonna love it. It's all ancient orders, secret societies, pulpy as shit. And if you can relate to anybody, like we mentioned, Nick ran a Call of Cthulhu game that Jake and I were a part of for like 15 years. If you can relate to anybody, this fucked up, twisted cult 
that shows up and instantly fucks everything up. <laughs> Nick Wall, absolutely. Maybe that's what it was. It was like I I DM'd around this shit. So when they show up and instantly get disintegrated, it was I. This is this is traumatic. I can't. So again, I really liked it. I had a good time. It's just. So please, anyone who's listening, don't shut this off. I'm not going to go on this long, but I'm just going to mention, I have 18 pages of notes on this. <laughs> but one of my note fields and breaking them out into notes is logic leaps. Yes. Because I, I had seen that raised as a point of concern, and it was something I, I thought would come up to one degree or another, which is, you know, just, there are some pretty big, obviously, leaps and things of convenience for the for the plot to play out uh the one i was expecting you to bring up i'm gonna have my retort to the logic stuff here in a minute but like there's a few of them but like the main one i expected you to bring up was why the ghoul waits until the movie screening to emerge <laughs> like why it waits exactly it's like the ghoul follows the three p's patience pestilence and a penchant for theatricality <laughs> <laughs> well i mean if the ghoul is emerging from his mouth you know you've got a sense of flair well, then is that, you know, like, why does Skeen let Inman see Merritt in the first place? And yes. my note for that was, is the best way I can torture you in your final hours, Merritt, subjecting you to health insurance bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> so th- there's a lot of that stuff I recognize. And and I'm not. You're like, right, because if they're expecting this damn thing to come out, like, within the next 24 hours or be dealt with the next 24 hours. Why risk it with anyone? You're right. Absolutely. And, and I'm not going for anyone who that stuff was sticking points for. You know, that stuff that came up in my head, you know, and there's other ones that, as I read. So if that's a sticking point for anybody, you're not going to tell anybody they're wrong. Absolutely not. My point is, <laughs> and I mean, just this is just for me. I don't mean this as, I hope this doesn't come off as snarky because I really don't mean it to. But like, the first page of this comic is a full moon, a derelict tree, a cemetery, and shadowy hands reaching is like page one. This is we're busting out every pulp trope we possibly can. Yep. Like I mentioned, the best jacket books all feel like it's, it feels like the, the first line of the pitch was let's go bananas. And in this one, what we'll talk in a second, part of their their pitch was they wanted to very much fuse old and new horror sensibilities in, in various respects. And you feel that. But it was one of those like. There's a lot of logic leaps and stuff in it, but it, that for me it was all part and parcel with the heavy, heavy pulp throwback element of it. And it was like, yeah, this is this is the book I expected it to be when I saw that opening. So it, it that stuff occurred to me, but it wasn't a sticking point for me. None of the logic stuff bothered me in the slightest because I thought of we this know. like I did like an old movie. You know, like I I realize this is about to contradict three years of my bullshit on this podcast. You know what? I'm not even going to say it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. It, it, Jer, how does it feel being a guest on the last episode of the <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I I thought in my head of it like, I, you know, kind of think of the original Universal Horror movies. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's more about, you know, the, the broader ideas of the story. It's the aesthetic, the fun of it, rather than any of the sort of nitty gritty details. And I admittedly, when I watch movies, I do tend to get hung up on the nitty gritty details. And I was a lot less forgiving of them. I just didn't give a shit. Oh, whatever. Does that make logical sense? Well, I don't have a spreadsheet in front of me, so I don't really care. It was a fun ride. 
but for me, it was just the story and the atmosphere so far outweighed any jumps or whatever. And and I'll say this. I kind of figured out that they were, you know, actually the Order of the Scarab when he barfed maggots on them. Yeah. Because maggots eat dead stuff. Yep. And that was like, hey, why maggots? And then I was like, oh, oh. And then you see the Scarab. And of course, it's not supposed to be, you know, the biggest shock twist. It's supposed to be a fun twist. You know, the fun, the, the you know, Bella Lugosi style twist. So, yeah. None of, none of that stuff weighed me down on it is what I'm saying. Not like it does when I'm watching movies and we really kind of get into the, you know, the two and a half hours of logic with this. With this, I could just, and maybe that's, this is just a personality thing of the way I process stuff. This was like eating, you know, a big, rich piece of, you know, New York cheesecake <laughs> that just, you know, melts in your mouth. And you can just like, it's just a, a complete sensory experience for me was reading this book and the art and just being able to kind of savor it as, you know, at my own pace. So a lot of the the rigid details that I again I do tend to focus on more when we're talking about filmmaking and you know that kind of storytelling. In this case, it just didn't get to me at all. I, and in fact, I didn't even think about the logic stuff until y'all just mentioned it. I don't even sound like myself. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> no, it's like, this is the last episode of the scary stuff. I didn't expect this going in, but <laughs> fell through a mirror portal. When you love something, you fail to see its flaws. <laughs> Springing off of what you just mentioned, so part of in talking about the inception of this, Scott Snyder talked about in interviews that the inception of this was circa 2016 and the turbulent political times of that era. I'm going to try not to get too overtly political in <laughs> discussing some of the thematic stuff. You, you can't both steal my bits. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to try not to, but just in general. So it was it was partly that the stuff they saw going on at the times and they they both found themselves going back and rewatching classic horror stuff at the time. It, like I said, if you follow Francesca Francovia, you've seen he's got pinups of posters for the Bela Lugosi Dracula, you know, Boris Karloff Frankenstein. He's got a great Invisible Man one, like all the classic monsters. He has these awesome prints. He ain't subtle about his politics either. No, I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, like I'm gonna try and and, and beat you, but it's if you follow the creators, it's I don't think it's that much of a shock. So, and they wanted to do this sort of fusion between old horror and old tropes as monsters and new ones. And what I thought was interesting of it is like you kind of get that progression as the book goes through. Like in those early portions of it, like spinning off of the black and white stuff, so much of the the building of dread is just based on shadows, like going back to old black and white stuff. It's all about casting shadows. Like it's like the, the most evocative image, you know, the recurring image of these hands and the shadows, which keep repeating. Like, I think they're like in damn near every issue. If you looked at so at one point, there's hands creeping in from the shadows and it's like, it all goes back to me. It was like, it all is evocative back to, Kind of what I think of one of the earliest horror images I can think of is Nosferatu and the the yeah. iconic shot of Nosferatu's shadow going up the stairs with those long fingers, which is interesting because the, the design of the ghoul takes this to the nth degree yep. as far as those proportions. And my note was that the design of the ghoul, and I mean this in a good way, is that the design of the ghoul looks like Nosferatu found his hole in the mountain in the Enigma of Amigar Fault. Which, if you haven't read it, that's not the first time Junji Ito is going to come up. I'm going to bring him up again, but that's a Junji Ito story that everyone should check out. So it's like I said, it's this old, you know, the the, the long figures, and everything's taken to the extreme. 
the opening splash page of page two, which is like the expository stuff about the ghoul. And it's all this very angular expressionistic, like it looks like the set work on the, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I'm sure there's, I'm, I'm not overly well-versed in old horror. So I'm sure there's a lot of references that I'm not getting. I'm assuming TF Merritt is a reference like with the, the TF prefix. I'm assuming that's a reference to FW Murnau who's the director of Nosferatu is part of the prep for this. I did watch. There's also an old Boris Karloff movie from, I think it's from 34. That's just called the ghoul, which was, I thought it was a real slog, but interesting. Uh, and the director of that was, I think, Oh, I can't find where I wrote his name. Deb. I think it was T Thomas Hayes or something like that. So it also had a T prefix. So I don't know if that was a nod or not to this, you know, ghoul movie that also would have been from the time, but T Hayes Hunter. T. Hayes Hunter, that's it, yep. Sorry, like I said, 18 pages of notes, I couldn't find that one. <laughs> uh, although some of that is I have images from the comic in there, so it's, I said, I promise this won't be a record-length episode. But yeah, so much in that early one is is all shadow-based. Like, I mean, they have shadows of people going down the hall, the shadows that are cast over merit, you know, as people enter his room, you see their shadows going over his bed. And then you get this progression well, first off, you get like a jarringly modern one with the title cards. Like you have all this throwback stuff and then you have the title cards, which is this skull set on in this, you know, very bloody text part one. Canary has a similar thing with these title cards that have a certain uh, horror motif to them. Like I said, maybe we'll do Canary at some point. So you start off with a lot of this old school stuff and then and this is probably going to take me into a discussion on kind of some of the color imagery. but. As you go through, you get this like sort of more modern sensibility seep in and building up to, like Jake mentioned, that big beat at the end of issue three, three of six. It's a little, like said, there's two issues in the singles where, where someone pukes up you know, a bunch of maggots and it's the, the beat of it, like this big splash page. It's kind of that old school, like Paul Parr sort of thing as far as this moment of the grotesque. But the sensibilities of it, of it, someone puking up maggots, it just feels very modern. And that's when you start to get the whole stuff with the Order of the Scarab, which their visual motif is decidedly modern. <laughs> we go. Yes. I'm going to switch over to talking about the colors real quick, because it's just kind of the easiest way to to get into this, if that's OK. So if you've seen Francesco Francavilla's work, you see he, he has very pulp sensibilities and he uses a lot of primary color work and in the first issue it's mainly like it's a wide palette of grays we'll talk, probably talk about how he did some of the added depth to the black and white stuff but it's mainly primary colors issue one blue yellow red and there's a little bit of purple with orson's mom which we'll get into in a second but if you look at those shades it's like the yellow is almost an ivory and the blue is almost a cobalt so they're very washed out and like almost gray so they're kind of like fitting sort of the old retro motif but the shade of what I'll call red, but it's basically it's it's a color you see on a lot of Frank Avia's pinups. And it's right on the I, I haven't done any graphic design like classes or so apologies for terminology or color theory or anything. But it's right like on the middle of the threshold of the color spectrum where orange becomes red. Yep. I assume it's taken from a lot of like you see it a lot on old Italian genre posters. Like, it looks like it's a weather-worn red where it starts to wear down. Like, if you look at the original poster for Blood and Black Lace, the original Italian poster for it, the poster for Il Demonio, um, I'm assuming a lot of old pulp covers, it's very much that red-orange. 
And a lot of times in Francovia's horror work, it's kind of the primary color where it just kind of washes everything over on this. You know, he uses it in Afterlife with Archie when there's a big horror beat. Like it, it kind of consumes the background. A lot of his horror prints, it's the primary color. I mentioned he did a series of prints for Black Horror History Month. They're all in degrees of this particular shade. So it's usually kind of this like omnipresent thing kind of saturates everything for the horror beats. It's used differently here, it, it seems to me, because here it's used very specifically to like draw your focus where everything else, all the colors are generally very washed out, but there's this very particular orange that's used to draw your eye to very specific things. Like it's used for the title cards. It's used for Skeen's tie. It's used for Merritt's pupils, the film can, the lobby card, uh, the research folder. Later on, there's the eggs in Skeen's office blood is there so it's it's kind of like this horror spotlight basically where it's not it's used as a mood piece as well particularly the end when you get to that last issue in the finale it's everywhere the book's just a wash in it but in those first few issues it very feels like it's it's what's drawing your eye to you know the horrific beat so it's interesting seeing it used as like a focal thing rather than kind of painting over the whole thing so to switch over to purple, there's, with the exception of the mother's gloves in issue one, I think that's the only instance of purple in the first three issues. Then you get to issue four, where Orson is crawling into the subterranean caves. And that's when you see the skulls in the flower and you get these little bits of this violet shade seeping in. So you get these little hints of it. And then you get what we were talking about earlier, the reveal of the Legion of the Scarab, which is we are full on Stuart Gordonville. We're full on Yuzna Town <laughs> nope. in this, where it's just this, and it's so effective not having the shade be reserved, and all of a sudden it's this very, very potent violet shade all of a sudden yep. in this absolute nightmare fuel of a panel. And it comes back later too. It, it's pretty intrinsic with the Order of the Scarab or the Legion of the Scarab, because in the final issue, when the Legion show up again at the in the very end and take the ghoul back. The gloves and the marker on the ambulance are both in that shade of violet. So again, you get this very modern sensibility where all of a sudden issue five hits and we're in Yuzna town. And like you're talking about, Nick was talking about the horrorish elements being like kind of peculiar for the Legion of Scare for the supposed good guys. It's like, man, I fucking love that. They were like, tonight we accomplish our mission, of finally ending this apocalypse ending beast. But first... The shunting. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I like exactly. that Skeen's first thing, like he has this distended stomach because, you know, this like presumably nest of insects and scarabs and maggots and whatnot that he's got in. It's this great grotesque image. But I like that. Also, it's like the first thing Skeen did when he got done his shift was take his belt off. Like, oh, God, I've been waiting for <laughs> day. It's like just the way he's sitting. I just love it. And he's like, oh, God, that feels so much better. And again, the characters in that, like, we, there's all these weird monstrosities that are never explained, but the people that, and again, they have these very Junji Ito-esque, yes. yep, like, very much. distorted proportions you know, with long limbs and stuff like that. And the way they're drawn, like I said, there's the, the eyes and the long tongues. So it's, I, I really had a fun time, like, trying to pick out, like, watching these transition points between vintage horror tropes and stuff that has a more modern sensibility. Absolutely. No, the color work was phenomenal. Uh, like top to bottom, everything with the art is stellar. Excellent choices, excellent execution. 
it pulled me in every page. Yeah, I figured you did the art stuff because I mean it's so a throwback to old EC comic stuff. Yep. And yep, yep, yep. and again, I don't know if Junji Ito specifically was an influence on any of this stuff. Like he, he's kind of just good horror shorthand at this point. But another one that made me think of it is the last page of issue four, which is one of my favorite pages in the book, which is the page where the ghoul in the black and white flashback sequence is erupting from the father's mouth. And you get these touches of where his eyes should be, or actually cigarette burns in not cigarette burns, but like burned portions of the, the black and white footage. But the proportions of which the ghoul is coming out with like the one leg and stuff, it's this Junji Ito-esque distortion of physics, where if you read yep. Junji Ito comics like Uzumaki and stuff like that, where it's like part of his whole stick is drawing stuff that's physically impossible. And that very much felt like the way the limbs are extending out and this whole thing's coming out. It felt like that, again, a very modern switch to, we're going to do something that's you know physically completely impossible. You know, you have the finale too, which we were talking about the the sequence in the movie theater where Merritt turns to <laughs> turns to the guy and says, "Hey, mate, what's your favorite horror franchise? Mine's Grave Encounters." And then his jaw descends. And... <laughs> I hadn't really thought about that with the colors. I guess it hadn't kind of clicked with me. I just kind of used to that orangeness in in Frank Avia's work. But I going back and while you're talking about that, looking through the page and yeah, when that purple hits, boy, that purple hits. Yeah, it's it's interesting to look at, like, because I, I and I just I love, again, all the, the shadow work in this. And there's little bits of it, too, that just contribute to like, I don't know if this is intentional, but like one of the things I had was it's an issue one. I forget which page this is from, but there's in the, the flashback sequence to the soldiers. It's before they hit the castle of color. There's a large panel of them, of the soldiers just walking and talking you know, the Uncle Johnny conversation, which comes up later. But if you look at the grass that's around them, and again, it's all drawn in like this, these black ink, these big, like Sharpie-like strokes. These fronds of grass, like you could draw them all in one direction, or you could just draw them all vertical. But if you look at them, they're pointing in on either side. So the fronds that are on the left panel, I guess it blades since it's grass, like the blades of grass on the left, are leaning to the right and the ones on the right are leaning in left. So even the environment just has this sense of claustrophobia where everything's just kind of converging, you know, even in a small way, everything's converging on the characters. And another one I want to mention, talk about was just a visual thing before we touch on more of the writing stuff was the framing stuff. Like one thing's mentioned that was so fun is it has this framing device where it cuts back and forth to this black and white footage. And then it's coming back to present day stuff. But one of the things I was curious about was just the actual framing of the, like literally the framing of it in terms of the panel construction, because with the, the present day stuff, it's all kind of like traditional panel stuff. All the edges of the panels are like perfectly smooth, but the past footage, that's all hand drawn. So everything has this uneven edge to it. But in terms of like the angles used therein, like the present day stuff will sometimes shift into stuff that's like more modern angles where they'll have stuff that's diagonals or like asymmetrical or dutch angle like if you look at the sequences of orson where he's exploring the facility like a lot of times the the actual framing of it is like on a tilt or it's on an angle or yep. the way the frame is drawn like the bottom of it'll dip so it's on a diagonal whereas the past footage fitting with the whole fact that it's supposed to be a film reel everything is perpendicular and everything within those frames for the most part is very like kind of like what you would see it's like straight on nothing at an angle 
everything's just very direct on. And the reason I point all that out was I thought it was interesting when you get to the final issue and the sequence in the theater where everything comes together and they actually play the footage. There's the double page. I, I don't know if it's a double page splash. I think it's like two single page splashes, but it's where there's the big exposition dump about what all the footage is. And if you look, it's the footage is literally like zigzagging and on diagonals. So it's literally like the two design formats merge and where you have the past footage that's literally crisscrossing in. So you have the stuff that's always been perpendicular up till this point, but now it's at these wild diagonals as the past and present converge. And it's like, like I don't know whether I'm reading too much into that or what was intentional. I don't think so. I think that's kind of how it felt like it feels like, con- like a convergence there at the end. That's, you know, everything coming together. And yeah, I, I agree in the way that the film is suddenly kind of at a different presented a different way. It's almost a transition. Yeah. And I just a quick note about the film stuff. I'm not sure I've ever wanted a fake movie to exist more <laughs> than I do the original night of the ghoul than I have in any, almost any of other media. It's so engrossing. Well, if we didn't bring it up earlier, tied in with that is so one interesting thing about this is this might end up being a movie. This has been optioned by Rob Savage for potentially being made into a film. And Rob Savage is the director of Host and a movie the three of us recently saw at a horror weekend called Dashcam. Nice. I like Dashcam. And... I think he's an interesting pick because as we certainly know from Dashcam, he's willing to go uh, the extra mile. Let's say zany. (laughs) (laughs) Really lean. And and I think you need, because one of the tricky things I think about adapting this to a film would be nailing the tone. Because I said, if if you don't embrace the pulp element of it enough, then like, like some of the stuff Nick was talking about, some of that stuff could become problematic. But one, the, the other things like just thinking about it is like, if I was in that situation, like where I had to adapt this, it's fun to think about trying to adapt it. But one thing is like, how are you going to do the the black and white stuff? Like, are you going to do like, because I'd love to do like shoot it full frame, like shoot it. And for the stuff where you like, you actually see the ghoul in the footage is like, are you going to get like Phil Tippett or something to do like a Ray Harryhausen-esque like stop motion element to it or something? You know, how are you going to? So th- That would be the way to go. There's a lot of interesting possibilities. And I don't know how much of that they'll be able to lean in on. A lot of this stuff would cost money. I don't know what they're dealing with in terms of budget. So, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a really interesting pick for a feature adaptation. I'm curious to see how it'll turn out. We'll see. That's that's an interesting person based on their work to to be doing it. I don't know if they would have been my first pick, but <laughs> I also don't know that they wouldn't have been because, like you said, the, there is a uh, a kineticness to dash cam that is hard to deny. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, and while this is more of a, a still kind of picture, not a lot of running, it, I, I don't know. I mean, the first film, Host, was just... What we're doing now. <laughs> not a lot of running in so, that either. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I'm curious. Also, like one of the things I, I had noted was talking about, you know, like just in general, like now that we're doing a comic instead of a movie, a lot of the stuff we normally talk about is is absent here in terms of like, because the way you gen- construct fear is so decidedly different. It's like, this is the first episode. You don't need to listen to me prattle on about there being too much score <laughs> on something. because We, we could hum a little for you if you want to. <laughs> but boy, you can hear what the score would be though. 
You can. Yeah. It's, it's, There's a lot of organ in this. What makes horror comics so interesting, like versus a movie is like a comic versus a movie is the passive versus the active, you know, in a movie, you know, you're engaging with the material, but you're also to a degree, you're, you're just having stuff presented to you as far as music performances, score, whatnot. I can't sit and look at my phone while I'm reading a comic. Right. Well, and also in terms of time, like your perception of time is subject to the editing, you're subject to, you know, however they cut these things together. You're, in charge of time when you're reading a comic where you're very actively proceeding at a very specific pace, but it also has the element. A lot of folks have talked about it of the page turn. So when Scott Snyder talks about why he's, again, if you look at his work, he has a lot of work in the horror genre. And if you look at his sub stack, like he, he talks about horror movies, he's seen a lot. He's very partial to the genre. And one of the things he talks about was a, he, he grew up and he had a video store where they wouldn't let you go in and rent stuff if you were like R-rated stuff if you were a kid, but they would deliver. Oh, wow. And it was a, like a known thing that this place would deliver you and like not ask questions. Huh. So I can't even imagine that is the best shit ever. <laughs> if we had a, a video store that would have delivered, my brother and I would have seen Private Benjamin way sooner than we did. <laughs> <laughs> and he talks about like one of the appeals for him for horror was it's if you're a kid and you're watching something horrific, you get to feel like you're being brave in a somewhat controlled environment for, you know, this limited window of time. I can feel like, like I was brave. Like I, I pushed past something. Nice. nice. And this comic and, you know, comics in general, but they all have that same thing with, with the car comics, the whole thing with the page turn where you get to the end of a page and there's someone who's doing a horrific reaction to something. And so, you know, logically, I'm going to turn this page and I'm going to see something fucked up. But you have to make that decision to turn that page. So it's interesting in terms of just construction that we we get to talk about this stuff in different language because, you know, it's, it's something that occurred to me until I was putting those together. You know, talk about that stuff. I'll tell you a story about reading Salem's Lot at three o'clock in the morning. Salem's Lot, which is the screenplay for that I just discovered was written by the same guy who did the screenplay for Friends of Eddie Coyle. So... <laughs> It all comes back to Eddie Coyle. Suddenly, I really want to do Salem's Lot. Well, if you want to hear Jake and I argue, talk about Salem's Lot. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I don't think we disagreed that much about that. Do you like that vampire in that movie? No. I do. All right, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll pencil you in. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll save time. We'll do, we'll do that because it's two halves, right? I'll do the first half and Jared can come on for the second half. <laughs> we'll avoid a constant thing by putting everybody in a corner. <laughs> or we'll just moderate it and everyone's got X amount of time. All right. Jeremiah, your rebuttal. <laughs> but a real quick music note, there was this interview with Franca V and Fangoria. And one of the questions, and this was to promote Night of the Ghoul. The question was, I know you're a fan of Goblin. Hell yeah. What do you like to listen to while you're working? Do you have a go-to, or does it change depending on the day, the project, etc.? Franca Vea's response was, I love putting myself in the right mood, especially when drawing a horror story. For the ghoul, it's definitely a mix of Goblin, Carpenter, nice. Fritzy, which would be Fabio Fritzy, who we talked about a little bit because he did the Castle Freak remake, but also did a lot of Lucio Fulci stuff, Zombie, City of the Living Dead, The Beyond. Uh, not a Lucio Fulci movie, but also did fucking pieces. I love that movie. Can't wait to do that someday. 
And then Francovia continues. He says, and other spooky, creepy scores that fit the atmosphere I'm drawing. Recent favorites are the scores for Under the Skin and Drag Me to Hell, which are very fitting for the ghoul. So two of the other composers who were running would have been Micah Levi, who did Under the Skin, who also did the score for Jonathan Glazer's upcoming movie, Zone of Interest. But Drag Me to Hell, of course, was Christopher Young. Everyone knows Hellraiser, Species, Tales from the Hood. For Jake, I'll throw out Rounders. I really like Christopher Young's score for Jennifer 8, randomly. Not an amazing film, but I really like Christopher Young's score for that. It's not a bad film. It's no rounders. It's no rounders. But but I want to throw that as far as movie stuff. So that was some of the movie soundtracks that were were kind of operating in the background as as Franco Villa was putting this together. So Yeah, he he posts a lot about that stuff on Twitter. He did. I'm not sure he's actually still on Twitter in the uh or you know what? I'm not even going to call it its new fucking name. Yeah, let's dumb not. shit. <laughs> it might have completely crumbled by the time this came out. Who knows? I, but so yeah, sorry if I went on too much about the art. I do want to touch on a couple of the writing elements real quick, and and one being one we touched on a little bit before, which was you guys brought up. You know the whole recurring theme of fathers and sons and parenting through this, which is a a big recurring thing in Snyder's work. Sure, shit is in witches, but um, yes, but comes up a lot in a lot of his books. And he talks about like even when he was doing Batman, like a lot of his stuff in, in conceiving like what the themes for certain arcs would be. He would think about like what were his underlying fears as a parent, and you know a lot of his horror stuff comes from that. What well, what am I afraid of? We talked about how this sprang from a rather turbulent time period in in recent society and. Like he talks about in Clear, Clear is based very much on you know his concerns of social media currently leading to echo chamber stuff and how folks can sometimes be isolated and not be algorithms are just going to feed you the same thing over and over. So you're not getting anything outside of the algorithm. Clear for folks who haven't read it is all about it's basically a cyberpunk esque story where everyone has neural implants that are connected to the internet. And it puts what they call a veil or a skin over the world. So you see the world in whatever way you choose. You can see it as a black and white noir. You can see it as cartoons. You can see it as it's an excuse for Francis Manipal to do all these various different design stuff. The gimmick is the title character is a private detective who always keeps his helmet on clear. So he sees the world as it is. And then there's a murder mystery that he's investigating from there. That's some Um, brave new world stuff right there. We have demons as all parental relationships, too. Yep. I mean, it's entirely all about the the daughter and the father and uncle or whatever it is. This is probably all Disney-related damage. All three of the, the, the best jacket launch books are, like you mentioned, we have demons. That's integral. It's what the first issue starts with, you know, this extended flashback of a parent-child dynamic. And then, Claire, like I just mentioned, there's a parent-child dynamic that ends up being very important to that, and then obviously neither the ghoul is about that. Neither the ghoul is interesting, like it's like, was the was the genesis of this like, kind of, like, as far as not like, what it is out there in the world that I'm concerned about, like, is the inception of this, like, him is like, I don't know if my son thinks I'm cool anymore, <laughs> which is kind of the undercurrent of this, which is the it's like, I just, I want my son to think I'm cool, and the whole thing about, you know, the father trying to bond with his son over this horror thing which is really just chair and i never had that problem because our dad still thinks he's cooler than both of us (laughs) 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 but well it's interesting in this too that it's all like pretext his father is like oh i just want to connect with my son what my son but it really it it, what we end up getting in the final issue is it's all generally self-serving is it's all those like yeah but fuck all that shit i'm gonna go watch this fucking movie 
you know, you can give the pretense all you want to excuse it, but it is all just you trying to come up with excuses for this behavior. But it's a fun parallel, you know, this whole you've got the present story, which is, you know, this dilemma with the son who doesn't his father isn't who he wants him to be. And then this past story with, you know, thematically, my father came back as a changed man for more. But no, it's literally my dad is a monster. (laughs) But even beyond the fact that that's a recurring thing, that this book repeatedly calls it out because Merritt himself keeps (laughs) saying my favorite issue, probably in the whole thing is issue two where Forrest keeps trying to project his thoughts. Like, oh, you did this thing called Night of the Ghoul, Mr. Manning. Ah, yes, I did. Yes. And it was, this. It was, oh, yeah. And it was, it was all about you running from this, you know, running for your past. Come the fuck again. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, you're running for your metaphorical. It's like, it's not metaphorical. It's like, he has the line, that great single page splash with the camera and the fire. He's just like, I'm not running from some fucking truck. It's just like, the ghoul is real. And like everything he tries to say is like pretext for this greater thematic stuff. Yeah, which is still, you know, in the terms of the comic still seems to be valid. But the whole time he's like, yeah, we've got this, you know, thematic, thematic ghoul, this metaphorical ghoul and marriage. Literal, literal ghoul. (laughs) It's it's a a real ghoul. And it's it's this guy constantly venting about, you know, his his dilemmas with his kid (laughs) to this hundred year old man who's been burned who has this apocalyptic eldritch being gestating inside him. Is he's like, oh yeah, you know, my child was. So you missed your son's eighth birthday because you were too wrapped up finishing a 4K remaster of the Return of Doctor X. <laughs> oh my, that's awful. I only walked in on my dad eating a dead dog. You're right, your son shit's way worse. So thank you for that. <laughs> Help me put things in perspective on my deathbed. Now, the hell with the Order of the Fly or the Legion of the Scarab. I'd like to cordially invite both you and your son into the Great Angel Brotherhood of Boo Fucking Hoo. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why Merritt in my head is a mix between Skeletor and Gartley from the Mangler, but <laughs> that is pretty appropriate. Now that's how he'll be in my head forever. It fits. It fits very well. But that whole sequence cracks me up. It's like I'm not running from fucking trauma. It's it's a ghoul. <laughs> oh. That was part of their inception too. They talked about was wanting to take sort of a lesser known creature and, and elevate it to headliner status, which they do in this that obviously by saying like it's. It's actually it's the precursor for every other monster. The ghoul's the source of it all. It's like, I like that. Well, I, I, I was excited partly because I'm a big fan of ghouls, mostly from our Cthulhu game. That's like we came into this with a skewed perspective. Like the whole thing is like this ghoul is this great evil thing. It's like man, it's from a Cthulhu perspective. Ghouls are great. <laughs> There's no better way to get rid of a body. They ain't hurting anybody. <laughs> they keep to themselves. Hanging out in new danks. They dispose of evidence. They're great. Lovecraftian ghouls are only a problem when the cemetery is empty. <laughs> you keep them fed. There's no problems. And we did. We kept them well fed. And we were friendly. <laughs> no, I uh, I loved it. I'm, I'm disappointed that Nick had problems with it. I think he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not wrong. I, I am legit surprised. Like, I, I really thought, like, all the... <laughs> I thought the the similarities to like in the Pulp Lovecrafty and stuff it was going to be a benefit, not a detractor. <laughs> it's fun. It's a fun ride. It is fun. It's making shit up as it goes, but it's a fun ride. <laughs> so for the next comic episode, we'll we'll mollify Nick and we'll do Providence. <laughs> We've talked about doing that with, if we can ever get Justin Benson there and Morehead on the pod. <laughs> you want to do Alan Moore? We'll do Alan Moore. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's some solid shit, man. Wow. It, it really brings itself together. It, it is a, a full package deal. Yeah. Providence is a... Hell of a ride. It's an experience. Cher, have you read that? I didn't finish it. I haven't, but I haven't read the whole thing. What about Neonomicon? <laughs> is that the two-issue precursor? That's the, Yeah, it's the other mm-hmm. Alan Moore. <laughs> Lovecraft one. Yeah, I read I read that two issue series. I mean, it wasn't it didn't blow my skirt up or anything, but it, I enjoyed it enough to to buy all the issues of Providence and not read them. I mean, <laughs> my, my brother in law asked me about Providence. He said, hey, "You think this is good?" And I'm like, "That's that's a complicated question." <laughs> <laughs> it is well done. <laughs> it is very well done. Is it good for you? Oh, no. No. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not going to leave you with a happy feeling. I remember reading that in bed next to my wife and just slowly turning the book so she couldn't see anything on it. <laughs> We're just going to aim this this way. <laughs> Didn't have to do that with Night of the Go. In fact, I wonder if she would like it. I should Probably. Have her no, read. That would be right up her alley, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Well, I mean, it's there's a little bit of gore with all the insects and... Stuff like that. She likes gore more than I do. But I mean, it's not... In fact, she she makes fun of me for not being able to eat during, like, gory stuff. I mean, there's nothing over the top in this. This is It's got a... There's a very classical feel to the, the violence in it and the, you know, the things that are supposed to creep you out. I think anybody who enjoys any kind of horror could find something they like in this story. Yeah. Agreed. It's certainly not... 12 issues of Providence. It's nice, nice, concise three issues or six issues, however you look at it. And it's like we all agreed, it's well paced and everything. I mean, I didn't think there was anything wrong with the logic in it that you guys pointed out, but I mean, there's, there's a lot to like in this. Don't book. lump me in with these Martians on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I was fine. No, I thought, like I said, for me, like it's, it, that's all part and parcel with. What it's paying homage to. I mean, in all honesty, the things that are most horrific are probably the covers. And that's to, you know, pull you in and get you to pick up the book, right? I mean, that's why it's as freaky as they are with that spider ghoul coming out of the corpse mouth on the second one. Yeah, I mean, I've actually got that one. Yeah, that's one of the ones I got sitting next to me. Yeah, the I think it's digitally, it's like it covered issue four, on the but on the print it's issue two. Yeah, the layout of the face—it's not exact, but it's very similar to the layout of the face from Lucio Fulci's Zombie. Yeah, like the the, yeah, I, the, the one covered eye socket and the one open one. I don't know if all the posters are deliberately riffing on something. Well, if you compare them, the the first issue at uh, at least the A covers, the first issue and the second issue are laid out exactly the same. Mm. I mean, the, there's the one eye. There's the ghoul coming out of the middle of the page. There's the opening. Yep. I mean, the only difference between the first and the second one is there's no moon in the second one. I don't have the third one in front of me because it's obviously I read that one in Comicsology, but they it's similar. Yeah. See, it's that one's even similar. There's the one eye. There's the, the this time everything's on the outside, but it's uh, the an inverse of the first two, right? I I gotta say I didn't realize there was the J.H. Williams cover to one of these, so now I've got a mission to track something down. There's a lot of covers, because looking at the credits, he did the covers for, in the first one, he did covers A, C, D, E, and F. Holy shit. I don't know who did B. <laughs> that might have been the Tulalote one. 
think it was Tulolo Tay did the first one, then I think Francis Manipal did the next. So there's at least six issues, six different covers for the first issue. Damn. Yeah, I may have to go variant shopping. I just want to come back to the one thing Jake said about eating and watching movies. I, I really think we need to sit down and have a dinner together and watch Ravenous now. That's tentatively penciled in for Thanksgiving. Has been since our uh, Lord of Illusions episode with Dwayne Sierzynski, who's also a comic writer everyone should check out. One of the things that I appreciated about this story, a lot of horror, a lot of pseudo-horror, whatever, you, however you want to look at it, I will compare it to It, you know, the first movie in the book, and if something feels like It to me, then it's good stuff. Right, because if you can pull off something as good as it, you've got something good on your hands. And this, you know, not because there's any, you know, parent relationships or anything like that. It's just the cutting back and forth between time periods and everything. You know, it, it's done just as effectively as it was in it. So to me, you know, like there's a podcast out there. Is it Jaws? Right, and I forget what the whole premise is, but probably is it Jaws? <laughs> well, no. It's is it, is it as good as something? Right. And is this as good as it? No, of course not. But it's along the same lines and has the same feel in my head that that's what makes it so good. Well, see, now, now what we got to do is have a running bit on the show where for each episode, we get a little 30 second thing in Jerry. We say, Jerry, is this as good as it? Nope. <laughs> and then we just move on. <laughs> <laughs> and now our daily it correspondent, Jerry. Is this as good as it? Mm-mm. Nah. (laughs) (laughs) That's an interesting scale. I I kinda like that. I it's funny because I I do a similar thing with the stand when it comes to a certain kind of story. Like is this have that feeling that I got when I first read the stand or not? And if it does, it passes muster. It's actually pretty topical because Snyder's mentioned a few times that his the story that kind of made him want to be a writer was Eyes of the Dragon. By Stephen King. Nice. Excellent book. Such a good book. I read that book in one day. That's how good that book is. Yeah. That's like when you're you're sitting on the toilet in the morning, reading a book, it gets out of control, and then it's just your whole afternoon. (laughs) That's one of three Stephen King books we had in my household growing up. We didn't have many because... I don't know why we had how we ended up with any because my parents, <laughs> my mother said, that man just looks evil. <laughs> like talking about Stephen King's, <laughs> just look at him. He looks evil. So, and talked to me, I mentioned before, we didn't have like a lot of supernatural stuff, but we had a hardcover copy of Eyes of the Dragon. Wait, wait, wait. Before you finish this story, <laughs> was one of the three things Tommy Knockers? No. Okay. Knockers. No. Hardcover copy of Eyes of the Dragon. The paperback edition of The Gunslinger, the first one, and a hardcover, I think it was a book club edition, of The Dark Half. Nice. <laughs> Those three were the three we had. Eyes of the Dragon kind of makes sense because like, it's in terms of his stuff, it's like, yeah, you look at that. and It's, it's basically a fantasy yeah. story. So that one I get, Gunslinger I get too. Like my dad probably thought, oh, it's a Western and picked it up. I have no idea how the Dark Half ended up in there. <laughs> I got nothing. Dark Half was the first Stephen King I ever read. Was given to me as a as a birthday gift when I was fourteen. Oh, awesome! Yeah, and then I tracked all of them down after that. Oh shit! Well, we'll have to do the George Romero adaptation as a birthday thing at some point then. Gunslinger was the first I ever read, unless you count Jared reading uh, the historical bits from it to me. Do you remember doing that, Jared? No, of course not. 
<laughs> when when you were reading it, because I was interested in like the history stuff, you know, the little sections where it's like the old news stories or whatever. Uh-huh. You read me those. I didn't. The whole book was too scary for me, but that that you, I was interested in. It's funny. That was kind of on my brain recently. The Stephen King book revival for a really random reason. I was talking earlier about like the possibilities of adapting this into a movie and to what degree do you replicate the old footage? Like I mentioned, one of the things that I was kicking around like in my head was like, it would be cool if they did the black and white ghoul stuff as stop motion, like, like actual old, like, you know, King Kong era, Ray Harryhausen stop motion, like that same frame rate and that same kind of jitteriness. Because if it's all in the black and white stuff, then when you get to the finale where the, the motherfucker erupts out and it would be, a, it would be a nice contrast for it to be you know, like all stop motion up until the big finale where the fucker bursts out. And then it's this big, you know, rendered CGI thing. It was like, so that could be a fun contrast. Oh, that'd be kind of cool. It was stuck in my head because that always makes, like, when you're talking about, like, nailing the tone of a thing, I keep thinking of Revival. Like, I was just reading Mike Flanagan talking about how he was, initially the rights to it were, uh, oh, gosh, I'm blanking on his name. Oh, Josh something or other. The guy who did New Mutants had the rights to it. Josh Boone. Josh Boone. Had the rights to do Revival. Then they lapsed. And then Mike Flanagan got it. And it looks like it's dead again at least for the time being, but I thought of it because revival is another one where it's like, there is, there is one scene you need to nail. And, and, and it's like, everything pretty much rides to me on that. It's like, there is very specifically one scene that you need to crush it on. And, and it's a horror beat. It's the horror beat of that. I'd agree. Yeah. But I haven't read much King. Hopefully I'll fix that at some point, but I have read a lot of Scott Snyder and I'm glad we finally got to talk about, uh, Josh Snyder, like any comic on this pod, likes, but before we ended up going on hiatus, we were tentatively looking at doing a comic episode on a different horror comic that we'll probably still do at some point. Funnily enough, written by one of Scott Snyder's students. There was another one we talked about spinning out of Lord of Illusions, which I would still like to do, but I don't think anyone else in the world will care about it. But this is like what we're doing now. This is store stuff. That's I never stopped us before. That's correct. Me specifically. We plow our own path. All the niche stuff. What the fuck is this? That that was a me episode. So. We we just had an episode on the Darkling, so you know. <laughs> okay, that's my fault. <laughs> just trying to keep things, you know, diverse. <laughs> no, I I liked it. And we got the reaction I was hoping for from friend of the pod, Fred. I said at the start of that episode, good luck dragging it down. So I found out Fred couldn't and was like, all right. Challenge accepted. Go buy the Region 2 DVD like I did, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> but no this was i'm kind of a left field for us to suddenly pull out a comic episode but i i thought this would be a slam dunk it was more like a, a really solid f- free throw i guess or something it wasn't quite a slam dunk <laughs> one four for four but we had three for four so hey 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 <laughs> i liked it all right. I well, we it. get three and a half. Come on. I mean, three yeah, and a half at, at least. At least three and a half. Yeah. Three and three quarters. I mean, he's only wrong about one or two things. <laughs> I still think people should read it. Oh, yeah. Sincerely, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you dug it. Like, if, if nothing else, I thought for sure it would be a hard one for you to dislike. And so I'm glad that proved to be the case. I'll never forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to add one more story. I got to see Greg Capullo in a uh, like a closed door session where you had to pay to get in and everything, and you know he signed some things, but he answered questions for an hour. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he got asked about was working with Scott Snyder because this is when 
they were doing the death metal after their Batman run and everything. Oh, I'm wearing my death metal t-shirt. This is my, <laughs> my one Scott Snyder shirt. I'm wearing my death metal shirt. Nice. The, what he said about working with Scott Snyder, and the more I read of his work, it's he's 100% right. He says Scott Snyder's crazy. He's a wild man. <laughs> and he 100% is in his writing. Just reading the, 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 what are these, brown jacket books, whatever they are, the things I call them. Best jacket, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you go from We Are Demons, which is a total action-packed thrill ride all the way through. Then you get clear. Then you get this madhouse story. <laughs> and I mean, everything he writes, there's a a frenetic energy to it that is consistently wild in all the things I've read anyway. Of his creator-owned stuff, I mean, you know, not necessarily. Yeah. Well, even even his DC stuff, like if you listen to... Court of Owls was pretty bananas. Yeah, but I mean in a different way. And I mean, you right, know... Right, for sure. If you listen to, like, I, I was really into his detective comics and his Batman run, and I was reading a lot of it, and every time they would get ready to start a new arc, Zero Year, Death of the Family or something, and listening to Snyder talk about the inception point a lot is, I mean, some of the stuff was, you know, stuff was, if you take his writing class, he talks about, like, his interactions with editorial, and, like, the time he he briefly quit Batman because of what Warner Brothers executives tried to pull on the final issue of Court of Owls. And he talks about screaming at editor Mike Martz in a target over this thing and said, you know, just tear up my fucking contract. So you can check out his best jacket to listen to what it was. I'll say this. If I was in his situation, I would have reacted exactly the same for what the demand was. But all his stuff with Scott Snyder, like even his stuff for DC, reading interviews with him and seeing him talk about it, he really does seem to try to find a, a personal entry point for either, you know, the thematic conception of it or something where it, it, there is a, a place of passion that it's coming from for the most part. And I really think it comes through like more often than not, even in his DC stuff, but you're right. It it's absolutely comes through like turned up to 11 in the best jacket stuff. Mm -hmm. so, so it, it feels like every book was like, let's go bananas on, Period romance, cyberpunk future, whatever, you know, this is, you know, Paul Parr, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and it's one of the things I really like about his stuff is, is you're guaranteed that he, he put effort into it and, and really put some thought into it. And and I just, again, I, I just really like his style. Yeah, I'm really delighted we got to talk about his work. Yeah, I, I appreciate you guys having me on for this. You, you can't see it, but Jerry's bagging his comics now signals the end of the episode this is over well i told you it was it was my last story <laughs> <laughs> no jared thank you for doing this like it, thank you so much really appreciate you coming like I, said, I was i know how much you dug witches so i'd love to have you on for like any comic thing but especially to get to talk to you about this particular comic, knowing how much you dug witches, I was really looking forward to this. Yeah, I, I really like this book, so I, I was glad to be here, and I'm, it's always nice to talk to you guys again, even Jake. Even me. <laughs> <laughs> we love you too, Jay. Look, we didn't fight this time, so, you know, that, that counts for something. Just wait till we get to that Sounds Lot episode, though. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. Eric's gonna need that bell. I didn't even know it did so well. We'll find out. That's preemptive. Just. <laughs> <for it. laughs>
before we wrap, I'll just mention real quick, since we're talking horror comics, just a couple. If you're listening to this and we were talking before about the distillery book that's coming out, some upcoming stuff, horror comic wise, you might be interested in if you're listening to this. So, again, there's the distillery. Devil's Cut is the name of the one shot that'll be out the end of August. Scott Snyder's got his book Dungeon coming out. There's another Dark Spaces book coming up called Hollywood Special. That sounds really cool. It's written by Jeremy Lambert. Uh, there's the series Good Deeds, which is out now, which I haven't started yet. I've got all the singles. It's written by Jay Grayson. I'll mention one that's not actually in print yet, but it's getting ready to be kickstarted, which is there's a Kickstarter for an anthology called Morsels, the Main Course. So nice. we actually backed the first Morsels series. The creator's name is J. Michael Donahue, and he's writing a series of horror shorts, but they're all illustrated by different people. The first one had art by... Christian Dabari, who's a big horror artist, Adam Cahoon, who's drawing, he's, he's now drawing The Nasty for John Lee's over at Vault. So good. It's got a cover by Alex Cormack, so who's done Crimson Cage, and is drawing an upcoming book called Drive Like Hell, which is one you should also take a look at. That's coming up from Dark Horse in October, and it's written by Rich Duick, who wrote Breath of Shadows, a horror comic for IDW. But yeah, so the Morsels, there was the first one Jim Michael Donahue did. And he's getting ready to Kickstarter another one. So it's kickstarter.com slash project slash J. Michael Donahue slash Morsels, the main course. We'll link to it, but just go Google Kickstarter and Morsels and you'll see it. The Devil That Wears My Face, which is a possession-centric comic coming up from David Pepos, who we I think we talked about his Hulk annual on a previous episode, the found footage one that he did for Marvel, did Savage Avengers, uh, his first issue of his Moon Knight City of the Dead series. Just came out this week, and it was really, really fun. So really excited to see David Pepos do this harsh story. And the other one that was just announced the day before we're recording this is Batman City of Madness, which is a cosmic horror take on Batman that's being done by Christian Ward. And Christian Ward is, nice. if you're listening to this, you've almost certainly seen his art. But horror-wise, he was the artist on the Aquaman Andromeda mini, which was written by Rom V. And he wrote a mini for image called uh bloodstained teeth which was a vampire mini which was really really fun but yeah fucking it's a cthulhu-esque batman story with gorgeous art so i'm really really so, excited about it i think that starts in october so i'm surprised you didn't mention dark ride josh williamson and uh andre bresson i have so i have the if we're talking about stuff that's being printed that one wasn't on my list but i have the singles for it i assume it's good since it's Josh Williamson. I'm enjoying it. It's a horror-themed amusement park that's having trouble staying open. And the, the nefarious things that are going to happen in order to keep it open. But just imagine Disney World, but it's horror-themed. Nice. So, I mean, that's right up everybody on this show's alley. So I'm surprised you didn't. I mean, that that's one that's worth checking out. I, I scarred him with a, my Bloodfest, Hellfest confusion. So horror-themed. <laughs> Uh, theme parks are a bit of a sore spot on this podcast. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it, to mention stuff that's either recently finished or ongoing, just real quick, again, Canary, as far as Best Jacket stuff, is a horror western written by Scott Snyder, drawn by Dan Panosian. I'm really digging it. There's one issue left to go in digital. I think the print issue of the first one hits in October or sometime this fall. There's another digital series that's coming to print at the beginning of 2024 called Blood Oath which is another comicsology series. It's a Prohibition-era take on vampires, but it's co-written by Alex Segura, previous podcast, who was a guest on our 
Moon Knight episode. Go buy his book, Secret Identity. It's great. But it's co-written by Alex Segura and Rob Hart. We talked about World Tree earlier, the James Tynan one, which is fourth issue is about to come out. It's fucking great. Sins of the Salton Sea by Ed Brisson, which is two issues in at AWA, which may just look like a crime book on the cover. But when you get to the end of issue two, you'll understand why I'm recommending it on this podcast. So if you're a horror fan, definitely check it out. Ed's awesome. Danny Laurie was our guest on our Blade review. Danny just did the five-issue Bloodline series from Marvel that was tons of fun. So go check that out. And one from someone who hasn't been on the pod, but a series I loved recently, we've tweeted about it, All Against All, written by Alex Pacnadel. It's a just a five-issue series where the logline is basically, what if Tarzan was the xenomorph? And it's, <laughs> it's an absolute... I, I really loved it. Alex's work, I like... Alex just did a... The Flash issue for the Night Terrors crossover that's ongoing at DC. And his issue of The Flash was really, really good. He's just doing these two issues for the Night Terrors thing, but his were particularly good. Why we're tossing recommendations out. It's, yeah, it's yeah. just about to wrap up, but I want to mention I Hate This Place from Image Comics. Kyle Starks, yes. It's by Kyle Starks and uh, RDM Topolin. It's a little bit hard to describe. It's about two women uh, who are trying to start out again afresh and new together and they inherit one of them inherits a farmhouse and the farmhouse is the host to everything and by everything i mean ghosts aliens monsters everything the the basic thrust of it is you know all that stuff about horror movies what if we put it all in one spot and then ran some people through the grinder and then it's 10 ish i think it's 10 issues i think the most current I think ones the last, last one's coming up yeah and just everything is in it it's one of the more bonkers comics I've read in a long time, but it's got a really nice kind of sweet core to it as well. So I, I highly recommend it. It's gross as hell, too. So, General, buckle up. Nice. <laughs> hey, everyone. Post-production Eric here. As Jake's about to mention, it was getting pretty late at this point in the recording, so there were a couple items we didn't have a chance to bring up that we wanted to. But since a couple other items have come up since we recorded, we're going to just come back and do this little quick insert to mention a couple things. Two graphic novels I've been meaning to bring up on the pod for a while. One is the graphic novel called The Keeper, which is co-written by Tanana Rivdu and Stephen Barnes, with fabulous art by Marco Finnegan. I really, really love this graphic novel. It's available from Abram Books. Hopefully we'll have a chance to talk in more detail on a future episode, but I've been meaning to bring that one up for months. Another one, if you're a fan of Josh Rubin, the filmmaker behind Scare Me and Werewolves Within, if you haven't heard, he has a graphic novel that he wrote as well called Darla, featuring art by Bree Tippetts. That one's available from Invader Comics, but you can also get it currently from Bree Tippetts' Etsy page. And that link is etsy.com slash shop slash Bree Tippetts art. So that's B-R-I-T-I-P-P-E-T-T-S-A-R-T. If you're into horror westerns, we were talking about Canary earlier. Uh, one shot was just announced called Swallower of Souls, which is coming out October 18th. That's from J.M. Brandt, who's the writer behind the horror mini Swamp Dogs and features art by Tom Napolitano, who's been working in the comics industry for a long, long time. It's a horror Western one shot that's coming out from Dead Sky Publishing. Dead Sky Publishing also just put out Haley Piper's new novel, Cruel Angels Past Sundown, which just came out recently. Haley was our guest on our Dream Warriors discussion, and we'll pick up anything Haley writes. While we're on the topic of previous pod guests, we somehow missed it previously, but Cynthia Palaya, who was our guest on our New Nightmare episode, she has a comic coming up. She's writing issue two of a series called Katrina's Caravan for Scout Comics. 
So it's issue number two, and the series is called Katrina's Caravan. Now that's coming out August 23rd, so it's past final order cutoff at your local comic shop. But with Scout Comics, I believe you can get pretty much everything from them directly. So keep an eye on Scout Comics for that. And while we're talking about previous podcasts, quick congratulations to a couple previous guests. One, Danny Lore, who was our guest for our Blade discussion. Danny was just announced as having a story in the upcoming Star Wars anthology called A Certain Point of View. Danny's writing a story called The Burden of Leadership. So big congratulations to Danny for that. And also Alex Segura, who was our guest on our Moon Knight episode. It was just announced that Alex is writing a daredevil crime novel that'll be part of a new series of crime fiction coming from marvel that's going to be coming out in not until 2025 and last but not least this episode's going to be coming out on monday august 7th of 2023 and if you live in the delaware or philadelphia area our host jacob and nick are part of a publishing group called oddity prodigy and they will be making an appearance at our local comic shop who we've mentioned before captain blue hen comics they're running a what they're calling an Acme show, sort of just a mini comic convention, and that's going to be taking place on August the 19th from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. So if you're in the Delaware area, it's the Newark Arts Alliance on Saturday, August 19th. So head on by there and see our host, Jake and Nick, and they'll be signing copies of the Scary Stuff Anthology and other works from Oddity Prodigy. There's a lot of other horror comics and comics in general that I'd love to bring up, but I don't want this insert to go too long, so we'll try and get on those in future episodes. So for now, thank you for listening, and I'll send this back to a very tired Jake. But yeah, that's all I got. I mean, I'm sure there's others, but it's late, and I'm tired, and that's all I can think of right yeah, now. So yeah, sorry, we, we've, we've gone late, but yeah, thank you for listening to this episode. Again, Jer, thank you for coming on the pod. And we talked earlier, you've got your appearances on the Magazines and Monsters podcast everyone can go listen to, where you're reviewing issues of Phantom Stranger. Yep, and then there's a, well, there'll be a... Uh issue of Brave and the Bold for his Brave and the Bob episodes and then we, <laughs> I'm hoping we'll, we'll get to do a Halloween movie this year too. Nice. Oh, awesome. Us too. <laughs> <laughs> and your site is comicscomicscomics.blog. That's correct. Yep. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I post somewhat regularly at uh, Big Ox 737 Everyone, go check out Jerry's blog. Follow him on social media. Thank you for listening to this episode of our pod we appreciate it again if you want to follow us on socials our link tree just go there it's scary stuff as the username for brevity sake like i said it's late that's got all our links on it plus lord knows by the time this comes out what social media platforms will still be around who knows <laughs> we'll try and keep it up to date so that's in the evolving social media landscape we try to have a presence everywhere we can but yeah thank you so much for listening to this thank you for letting us talk comics for a while we really appreciate it we will be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, this is Eric. Thanks again. Signing off. This is Nick saying, okay. <laughs> this is Jake saying, it's been a good run. <laughs> Goodbye, folks. Bye, everybody. Good night. <laughs> Pull.